appreciate it, brother. The year was 1973, when the landmark decision by the court would change the course of history forever. The case we know as Roe v. Wade was not merely a decision, it was the decision. It was the decision that changed the course of history regarding the issue of abortion for women in the United States. Now why do I say that it was the decision? Or to ask it more broadly, why are some cases more important than others? Like why do some cases have more weight than other cases? And to answer that question, we should understand that some cases are indeed more important. And some cases are more important not because of the actual case in itself, but also because of where it's being heard. Where is this case being heard? In our country, the highest court has the most important cases. And in our country, the United States, in the United States, the Supreme Court holds that position of being the highest court. They have the power to overturn a decision that the lower court has made. They have the power to set the precedent for all future decisions regarding a particular case, such as Roe v. Wade. The Supreme Court is the highest court in our nation. In ancient, in, <clears throat> sorry. in ancient Israel, there was also a higher court, if you were. There was also a higher court in ancient Israel. If, if you want to say they had their version of the Supreme Court, they were called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin consisted of about 70 men who were elders, scribes, and other leaders, chief priests. And they also would have, this is very important, along with these, high, along with these chief priests and these elders and these rulers, they would also have what you call a high priest with them. The high priest, now the high priest, they were very important. They were, in fact, the most, one of the most influential people in Judea. They were the most influential people in the Sanhedrin council. So in the Sanhedrin council, these high priests would have the most influence in the decisions that were made. They held a lot of weight. Now, I'm going to test you later on, so I'm going to see if you're, you're all paying attention. So if you would remember, because I'm going to test you, the Sanhedrin consisted of about 70 men. They were like the Supreme Court of the day. And the most influential people in the day, or the person, because it would only be one person, was the high priest. Okay, The high priest had the most influential seat. Now, we understand that they didn't have absolute authority as they were still under Rome's control in the New Testament. So they, there were some decisions in which Rome um, could, overthrow, could, could overturn their decisions. We understand that, but make no mistake about it. They, and they had a lot of power. The Sanhedrin had a lot of power. Now, whether it be the Supreme Court of our day today or the Sanhedrin in the days of ancient Israel. What do we do when there is a clash between the church and the state? What do we do when the government makes a decision in which the church disagrees with? How do we submit to the government in that way? If you were with us, these past few weeks, you would know that we have been studying through the book of Acts. And if you have been with us, you understand that this is the birth of the church. It recounts the birth 
of the church. And so if you will turn with me to your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4. Can somebody just shout out the, the page if you get it? Um, 969? Thank you. To save us some time, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read um, verses 5. Uh, we're going to go down to verse... We're going to go down to verse 12. And then we're gonna we're gonna pick up throughout through the sermon the, the passage throughout the sermon. Acts chapter four. I do apologize if my version is not like yours in the pew, um, but it's pretty much the same. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you, to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that, that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, we're going to continue from 13 all the way down to verse 31, but we're, we're not going to continue it now, but we're going to continue it throughout the sermon. But let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks, Lord, for your word. Thank you, God, that we can look at your word, God, and we can see the example that the, the apostles have set when they stood before these authorities and how they responded to the government. Lord, help us so that we can know. Help us so that we can understand from your word how we are to respond as a church. God, I can pray only that you would fill me with your spirit as you did Peter. And that you will open up the hearts of these hearers. That they would receive your word, Lord. And that I will preach with unction. And that you will be glorified in our midst. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I was preparing the sermon, I realized that there is so much to be said about this passage that I couldn't say everything that there is to be said about, about the passage. We're reading from verses 5 to 31. I don't know why Stephen did that to me, but he did that to me. And, um, but we're going to see if we can march through the passage and see what we can do. Let's go through the passage real quick. We begin in verse 4. I'm sorry, we begin in verse 5. Verse 5 opens up with the words, on the next day. I don't know if it says the same thing in the CSV. It says, on the next day in the ESV. Let's, let's stop right there real quick before we continue in the passage. It says, on the next day. Um, verse 1 through 4 recounts the story of Peter and John preaching God's word and being arrested as a result. So when it says on the next day, this is the following day of their arrest. What happens the next day after the apostles were arrested? And so it says on the next day. Now what does it say? On the next day, my says the rulers, elders, and scribes. On the next day, the who? Those three people, three kinds of people. It says rulers, elders, and scribes. 
rulers, elders, and scribes gathered together. So now we are introduced to the opposition. The rulers, elders, and scribes. This is most likely, guess what? This is most likely the Sanhedrin party that is being referred here. The same Sanhedrin party that I had mentioned earlier. The word Sanhedrin is actually Greek. It, the Greek word is actually synonymous to the council. So sometimes you'll see the word council being used in the Bible. And when it says that the council convened or that the council came together, a lot of times it's referring to the Sanhedrin party because the words were interchangeable. Council, Sanhedrin, it was almost the same thing. So when you're reading the Bible and you see the word council, you could, your antennas could go up and say, hey, look, I remember this preacher, what he was saying. He was saying that the council, um, perhaps this might be the, the, the Sanhedrin party, the, the supreme court of their day. But sometimes the Bible would not use the word council to describe um, when the Sanhedrin would get together. Sometimes it doesn't say council. Guess what? Sometimes, you know what the Bible uses? Sometimes the Bible says the rulers or the elders or the chief priests. It would say council at times, or, or it would say rulers, elders, and it would even say scribes. Why would the Bible say that? Now, why would, why would the Bible um, use those um, words to describe the Sanhedrin? Because the Sanhedrin party consisted of these rulers, elders, scribes, these chief priests. That's what the Sanhedrin party consisted of. It's almost as though the Supreme Court today, we say that these are the justices. The chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the rulers, these were members of the Sanhedrin party. You follow? Is everybody with me? Good. So these were the members of the Sanhedrin party. Now, if um, you were thinking or if you were uh, paying attention, um, I'm sorry. So when you read this passage, you see that it says, the rulers, elders, and scribes, they met together in Jerusalem. Uh, we should take note, again, that this is the Sanhedrin party. Now, it says that they gathered in Jerusalem. Why did they gather in Jerusalem? What was going on in Jerusalem? Well, there was this temple, the temple, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And in the temple, there would be a an actual area within the temple, which was a court, which where, where they would actually, um, where cases would be handled. Um, and if you could remember, Jesus Christ, that's where they ushered Jesus Christ when he was arrested. They brought him in the temple. They brought him into the courtyard. They brought him into the court and where they were able to make judgments on Jesus. That's where, he, that's where Jesus went through trial. And so that's why they gathered to Jerusalem. They gathered there so that they can go in the temple, so that they can go and meet together so that they could make judgments in court. So they're meeting together. They're getting ready for their interrogation. And so, by the way, I just want to let you know that the council, they did not necessarily meet together for Peter and John. The council met on a daily basis. This was their thing. This is what they did. They actually always met together. The only times in which the council did not meet was during the Sabbath or during a Jewish festival. But they were accustomed to already meeting every day anyway. So this might be an occasion for them to meet together, um, particularly for their case, but it may not have to do with them. Maybe they have other cases that they have to worry about as well. But all we know from the passage is that they've met together. And... But it says the rulers, the elders, the priests. It says those were the guys that met together, or the elders, the rulers, the elders and the rulers, they met together. But I think we might be missing someone. Who did I say was the most important? The high priest. Ah, good, thank you. Someone is paying attention. Exactly, I'm, I'm excited. The high priest was the most important person. He had the most weight. The high priest was the most influential person in the council. But 
I see rulers. I see elders. I see the scribes. Where's the, where's the, where's the high priest? Well, let's go to verse 6. The rulers, the elders, the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Look at verse 6. Along with, uh-oh, Annas, the high priest, and who else? Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all who were part of the high priestly family. Wow. So here they are. The council, they're meeting together. This influential family, the high priest, they've met with this Sanhedrin party. They are ready to make some decisions. I wish that I had more time to explain this family, Caiaphas and Annas. But as a quick note, there could only be one high priest at a time. One person could be high priest. And at this time, Caiaphas is the high priest. I know that the Bible, I know that we see Annas is the high priest in the passage. It says Annas the high priest plus Caiaphas. Annas was actually removed from his position. And when he was removed from his position, Annas still contained, still maintained that influence. And so he would always be part with them. He would be with them. And so this high priestly family held a lot of weight. Though Caiaphas was the high priest at the time, Annas was still present. It's almost as though if I say, uh, Mosaic, I'm no longer your pastor or something like that, and I stay in this church, all of y'all are going to listen to me. You're not going to listen to that new pastor, right? <laughs> so that was the thing with Annas. Annas was no longer the high priest, but he was still present. He was still involved in everything. So it says Annas was there, and Caiaphas, who was the, who was the current high priest, by the way, Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas. It only stayed within the family. They could not leave the family, the high priest. I hope I'm not boring you guys, but this is basically just the context in which so you, you can be able to understand what's going on better. Um, and so these were the people that met together. Um, now, the rest of the names, I'm going to be honest. Um, no, we're not sure. The commentators, they're not sure about who they are, but we understand that they were part of the high priestly family. It says that one of their names was um, Alexander, I believe. Um, I might be, I'm lost a little bit. I think it said Alexander. We don't know who, we don't really know. It's not really clear as who these people are, John and Alexander. But we do know, obviously, from the scriptures, from the passage, that they were part of the family. You follow? So let's see what happens. Verse 40. Oh, actually, um, let's pause here real quick. I want to do something with you real quick. I want you to kind of see and appreciate um, how we got here. How did we get here to where we are right now? Um, there has been a historical, I guess, beef, if you want to use the word, um, between Jesus and his disciples and this high priest and Caiaphas and Annas and the Sanhedrin party. Okay, I just, I'm going to just do a quick survey real quick with you, and we're going to get back to the, pro to the um, passage, I promise. But let's just stop real quick, and I want to kind of show you um, this, I guess, beef um, that they've had. If um, John 11, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read this real quick. Um, verse 47, it says, Therefore, <clears throat> the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council together. Council, Sanhedrin. They were saying, what are we doing? This is when Jesus Christ was performing all these mighty works, right? Jesus was doing these mighty works before them. Now the council, guess what? In John, it says that the council meets together, right? And they, one of them, they were performing mighty works, and one of them spoke up in the council. He was the high priest. His name was Caiaphas. Oh, Caiaphas. We see him in John 11. And so Caiaphas says, um, listen, he, he tells them, look, this man, Jesus, he needs to die. And from that day on, Caiaphas, along with the rest of the Sanhedrin, they plan to murder Jesus Christ. Okay? We find, this in, we find them also in Luke. It says, when those who were around them saw what was happening, um, this is when um, Jesus, and, Jesus and the disciples are about to be arrested. Judas is already betraying Jesus Christ. They're ready, they're ready to arrest Jesus Christ. Now, um, 
the, um, now, now one of Jesus' disciples asked, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut his ear off. But Jesus answered, stop, no more of this. And he touched the ear. Then Jesus said to the, then Jesus said to the who? The chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who came against him. Have you come against me with swords and clubs um, as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay a hand on me, but my hour, this, this has happened because my hour has come. And then you turn to Matthew 26. It says the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimonies against Jesus that they might put him to death. Look, Jesus is in court. Jesus is in their court. And it says that the chief priests and the council, they were trying to make up a false testimony against Jesus Christ. You follow? So this is the same Sanhedrin that we're reading about right now. They're making up false accusations against Jesus just so that they can have him, just so that they can kill him. And so we see in another passage, it says, those who had seized Jesus, they led him away to who? They led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. And then that's when Peter sat down in the distance and Peter denied him three times. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony. Um, and then and they, they, they tried to get, gather false testimony against Jesus. And, and Jesus never answered them. Jesus did not answer them a word. And um, the high priest stood up against Jesus, right? The high priest, which would have been Caiaphas, okay? Caiaphas stood up and said to him, Do you have no answer? What these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ or not. And then Christ affirms, yes, that he is the Christ. Then the high priest ripped his robe. That's Caiaphas for you again. He ripped his robe and he said, you blasphemer. We don't need any more witnesses against you. You deserve death. And look, they beat Jesus and they did something disrespectful. Yeah, beating Jesus is one thing. They spit on Jesus' face. They spit on Jesus' face. This is this is the height of disrespect. This is the Caiaphas in which we're dealing with right now. And so, this is the same Sanhedrin party. The, the Sanhedrin party, again, they consisted of about 70 people. We don't know if everybody was present there, but now the disciples are gathered before, the two disciples, um, Peter and John, are gathered before this high priest and the rest of the Sanhedrin. What did they ask him? What did they ask the two disciples? When they had, verse 7, it says, when they had set them in their midst, they inquired. What did they inquire? What did they ask? They inquired. What did they ask? They did not ask the disciples about their teaching. They did not ask the disciples about the content of their teaching. They didn't ask the disciples about their theological positions. They had one question and one question only. By what power? Or by what name are you doing this? They had one question. Um, they wanted to know how was this crippled man healed? That, that's what they were puzzled about. They understand that this was indeed a supernatural power. They could not deny it. They were curious as to the source of this power. Verse 8. Oh, I love this. Hmm. They asked Peter and John, by what power are you doing this? What power are you doing this by? Now, remember who Peter is. Peter denied Jesus Christ three times, even before a slave girl. Peter, his natural disposition is one that is self-preservation. Listen to Peter in this passage. It says, verse 8, then Peter... Filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's stop there real quick. Just real quick. Um, this reminds me of something. Um, Jesus says before, 
Um, when they bring you um, before the synagogue and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about what you are to, about defending yourself or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus said that to them. He told them that. Now, so that, now what we're seeing here in this, in this passage is that the disciples are being empowered to remember Jesus' words. To, to have extra wisdom, to have this knowledge, a supernatural um, wisdom and boldness. The disciples have, are filled with wisdom and knowledge and boldness, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and now Peter opens up his mouth. Peter, filled with the, with the, with the Holy Spirit, says to them, he opens up his mouth. He says, rulers of the people and elders, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Rulers, if you come to ask me about this, if you're coming to ask me about how this person was healed, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel. And so Peter is looking straight at these people, perhaps 70 plus men. Let it be known to all of you, all of you 70 men who, are, who, have, um, who, have, who have so much power. Let it be known to you. So Peter is not backing down here <laughs> as we see. He says, let it be known to you and not only to you, but all the people of Israel. Maybe there were men in the court listening in on this testimony, and Peter does not want only the Sanhedrin to hear this. He wants everyone in his presence to hear this. Perhaps Peter still is still in chains right now, but his mouth is not in chains. He wants everyone to hear what he is about to declare. Let it be known to you, to all of you, that it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stop. Here. I'm always stopping. I'm sorry. We're never going to get through this. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Peter could stop right there. Peter could stop right there, and honestly, I would be satisfied with his testimony. They came and they asked him, by what power are you doing this? What's the source of your power? And Peter says, it is by the name of Jesus Christ. Now, if Peter was really shy, you know, he would have been like, you know, it was, it's Jesus. What? what? I, Jesus. It's, it's Jesus. That's, that's how he got healed. Jesus. Peter didn't sound like he was shy or nervous about it. Peter was direct. I would be satisfied with this testimony, wouldn't you? But Peter doesn't stop there. <laughs> Peter does not stop there. Peter speaks to the same Sanhedrin that crucified Jesus. Peter is well aware of their power. And that's what motivated him to deny Christ three times because his life is at stake here. Peter could stop, but he doesn't stop. He pushes forward. He says, by the name of Jesus Christ. What else he says? He says, whom you crucified. Whoa, whoa, Peter, Pete, Pete. Peter's calling them out now. You want to know how this man was healed? It's the same name, Jesus Christ, that you crucified. You of the Sanhedrin party. You of the high priestly family. You have crucified him. Ha. Huh. Peter's not done yet. It says, Jesus whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. You are guilty, or watch, he says this, basically he's saying this, you are guilty of killing the one who God validated by raising from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you. That's what Peter does. Peter, instead of just saying, oh, it's Jesus that, that was healed, Peter presses in. Now, I would be satisfied. Now, Peter, okay, Peter, you just told them that it's Jesus Christ whom you crucified, you know, whom God raised up from the dead. I'm satisfied. Peter's not done. P 
Peter's not done. I, Peter is like, okay, I answered your question just now. How this man was healed. It is through Jesus Christ. Now that's bold enough. But Peter goes more. Peter goes beyond even answering their question. And he is going to press the issue and go further and preach the absolute exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. See, in ancient building practices, the cornerstone was the principal stone placed at the corner of the edifice. The cornerstone was usually one of the largest, the most solid, and the most carefully constructed of any of the edifices. Peter's point is clear. This is not just an inconsequential stone that you have rejected. This is the stone that you have rejected. Anything that you do to build upon that foundation is in vain. And in case you don't get it, I'm going to go further. Verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no one out, no one, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friends, this is what we believe. This is what we believe. This is the gospel message. This is what we stand on, that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of this world. There is salvation in no one else, not in Buddha, not in Krishna, not in the false gods of the Hebrew Israelites, not in Muhammad, and certainly not in yourself. There is nothing you can do to earn your own salvation. You cannot be a good enough person to make it to heaven. You cannot make it to heaven by being a good person. And even if you could make it into heaven by being a good person, you would make it to hell. You would be damned. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is on Christ, the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Look at the response of the Sanhedrin. Look at the response of the Sanhedrin. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common, and were, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the men who had been healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Nothing to say in opposition. Hmm. If I was a southern preacher, I would say tap your neighbors and say nothing. But I'm not a southern preacher. <laughs> That was not part of my notes. I don't know where I came up with that from. Um, <laughs> um, so they had nothing to say in opposition. Um, they saw their boldness and they were astonished. They never seen anything like this before where they were uneducated. These men were uneducated and common men. They were just common men and they would speak to them in such a way. And it says this, this is good. It says they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that amazing? They looked and acted like their Savior, Jesus Christ. That is beautiful. The Holy Spirit empowered them to be like their Lord. Oh, remember, remember, Jesus told his disciples, I don't want you to go preach yet. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And now this is the Holy Spirit. He's empowering his disciples to be like their master. So they recognize them like the master. And so... It says that their mouths were shut. They saw their boldness, number one. And verse 14, it says that they saw the evidence. Basically, they see the man who was healed standing right beside them. So you imagine Peter and John, the Sanhedrin. Okay? The Sanhedrin, Peter, and John. But also what we find in the story is now reveal that apparently this crippled man is there too. And so they're looking at this crippled man. They're looking at their boldness. They have nothing to say. 
The man who once, once was crippled, now he's walking. They're like, what's going on? Huh. Now this is very important. Because remember what I said, if you remember, that the Sanhedrin, they would actually meet together. They would meet in Jerusalem. They would meet in the temple. Do you know what? Where this crippled man would sit all day? He would stand right before their temple. He would sit right, right there. So they had nothing to say because they knew. They seen the evidence. They seen that this man was crippled every single day. Now they see this man standing up. That is the power of Jesus Christ, and they had nothing to say. Their mouths were stopped. Praise God when the mouths of unbelievers can be stopped. So what did they do? They should be like, our mouths are stopped. We see the evidence. Let's trust in Jesus Christ. Shouldn't that be the natural reaction? This is the evidence before us. And by the way, if I'm not, I hope I'm not saying this wrong, but the same Sanhedrin party, right? When Jesus was raised from the dead, remember those two guards that ran? They were shocked. Like, I can't believe I seen Jesus raised from the, raised from the dead. I can't believe I saw an angel. The Sanhedrin party is the one that paid them and said, shh, don't tell anybody this. You follow? No matter how much evidence they see, no matter how much evidence they see, they couldn't be like, oh, wow, he rose from the dead. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be saved. Friends, listen to me. The, 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 there is a sense in which when you understand the nature of your own hearts, the, our blindness without Jesus Christ, we are so blind that any evidence could be laid before us. Supernatural evidence could be laid before us and we will still be blind. That's how much we are addicted to our own sins. That is, that, is the, that is the human heart for you. And so they see this evidence. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? They see all this evidence. Um, okay, I'm in verse uh, 16. No, I'm sorry. Verse 15, um, basically what happens is that when they see what happens, when they see what they're doing, when they see what the disciple, they see all the evidence before them, they, sit, they kick out the disciples for a little bit. They send them outside for a bit so that they could actually make a decision about this. They're like, I don't know what's going on right now. Peter and John, step out real quick. We're going to try to make this kind of, we're going to try to make a decision. We're going to try to figure out what's going on. What's happening here? And so that's what we find in verse 16. And so verse 16, they're like, what should we do with these men? This notable sign that has been performed through them, it's evidence that all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. <laughs> he said, we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak to no more people in his name. So they called them and charged them to not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Good luck with that. Now, as an aside, the Bible does teach us as Christians that we ought to obey our leaders. That there are, um, we are called to obey the government. But what happens when the government or the authorities asks us to disobey God? What happens when there is a clash, when, there is, um, when, when, when they want us to do something that is against our Christian conscience? And by the way, do not think that it's not happening here in America. What do we do? Verse 19. So they called them to tell them, don't preach in Jesus' name. What does Peter say? But Peter and John answered them, whether, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you Rather than to listen to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them, let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the, sign, the healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Meaning that there was no way this guy could get healed outside of God's supernatural work. 
What a beautiful example of how we are to respond to the authorities when they ask us to disobey. It is right to listen to God. You, you judge. Is it right to listen to God or is it right to listen to man? You will come to a place in your life where you will have to make a decision. Man or God? Pleasing man or pleasing God? The fear of man or the fear of God? You're going to have to come to a, to a place, to that place. You might have already come to that place. And so the, they had nothing to do, but they had to send them out. And they released them. So now Peter and John are released now, and they go to their friends. They go to their friends, you know, telling them, recounting the story, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends, and they reported what, what the chief priests and the elders said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices to God. If I could, I would preach a whole sermon only in verses 24 to 31, if I could. But Rick is looking at me and he's saying, no, you better not. <laughs> if I could, I would, I would love to just, to just go through this passage with you really slowly, but I, unfortunately I can't. I want to point out some good, good things in this passage that, you, that, you, that we can glean on. So let's, let's go. Let's look at the prayers. When they convene with their friends, when they get together with their friends, let's look at this beautiful prayer. A lot of times, when the disciples, when we read the Bible, when the disciples, when they have a prayer request, whatever, maybe sometimes, whatever their prayer request is, they would use an attribute of God related to that prayer request. You follow? So if I've sinned against God, I pray, oh, gracious God. Why? Why do I say gracious God? Because I want to be reminded of God's graciousness. I want to be reminded of the fact that this is the God whom I'm speaking to. I'm speaking to a God who is full of grace. Oh, Lord, you who forgive sins and iniquities. Oh, Lord, I beg to you, beg you as a result of these things. And so the disciples, what they do is they name an attribute of God in relation to their prayer. You follow? And so they said, oh, what did they say? Sovereign. I don't know if yours says the same thing. Oh, sovereign Lord. Sovereign is a word, big fancy word that just means in control. God is in control of everything. God orchestrates everything. And so they said, oh, sovereign Lord. They give him that, they, they, they say that, give him that title. Now, they're going to expand on the sovereignty theme. You follow? Their prayers are going to exp expand on the sovereignty theme. It's going to say, oh, sovereign Lord, how is he sovereign? Who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them? Who through the mouth of David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? I wish I could go through that. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly... In this city, they were gathered together against your holy servants, whom you anointed. Look, look. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever you wish. God is sovereign. God allowed Pontius Pilate, Herod, and all his enemies, the Gentiles, to do what God has ordained. You follow? God is sovereign even over evil. God is sovereign even over the things that look like, oh, I don't know if this is going the right way, but God is still sovereign in that midst. And believers must take courage and take and, 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 and rejoice in the fact that we are worshiping and we are serving a God who has not lost control. Our God has not lost control. And so as they're praying, they're saying, oh, sovereign God, God who's in control, you who orchestrated Herod, Pontius Pilate, all of these people to do exactly what they do. Now, when I'm, when I'm understanding that God is in control, sometimes I think I get to a place of, okay, I won't pray because God is in control. I don't need to pray. But no, they are praying. 
They're praying. They're saying, God, even though I know you're in control, I understand that prayer actually changes things. That there is a sense in which, even though I know and I maintain this truth, that you are 100% sovereign, I believe that, but yet I still am going to come to you in prayer. Oh, you, Lord, verses um, 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You've already destined even before time. You planned this even before thing. And now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So their prayer request is that they would preach with boldness. How much do we need that prayer for today? Paul the Apostle asks, asks in the Ephesians, he asks the believers, he says, pray for me so that I would be bold. You know, sometimes at work, we go to work or we go in our classrooms and everything like that. There are going to be times where we're going to need, God, I need boldness right now. Cause, because. Why? Because they are threatening me. They are threatening me. They're saying, if I don't agree with them on this whole issue of transgenderism, I am going to be fired. Lord, I need, I need prayer. We need wisdom too, right? We need wisdom. But Lord, I need prayer. I need prayer for boldness in this situation. Because if I, the government is, is pressing down on me right now, maybe they're telling me to do this or they're telling me to do that. Lord, help me to fear God more than I fear man. Help me, Lord. Again, there's wisdom, practical wisdom to this. I don't want us to go out there and be reckless and say, and you know, you guys are end up in a newspaper, um, and then you guys are going to blame me for this. But I want us to be wise, but I also want us to be bold. Okay? So they pray for boldness. And what happens when they pray for this? Verse 31. And when they gather together, together, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, the place was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word with boldness. They're not afraid. They continue to speak the word with boldness. What a beautiful passage. A passage in which I, w- I wish that I could spend more time in. But this is the passage that is set before us. And in that, there are... T- Billions of, of practical applications for us. Maybe we've thought of some um, while, we were, while I was preaching. But I only have three basic things, three things to, to, for us to think through. Along with whatever you might be thinking God, the way in which God is calling you to respond. Number one, number one, do not be surprised if the laws in our land become increasingly hostile to basic fundamental Christian beliefs. Do not be surprised if the laws in our land become increasingly hostile to basic fundamental Christian belief. That's a little bit of a stretch from this passage, I know. But this is a passage in which you see the authorities over here and the Christians over here. And the authorities want them to do one thing, but the Christians, they understand that they cannot, they cannot, they cannot disobey God. And we're going to come to places in our lives where we're going to have to be forced We're going to be forced, and it's coming at us really quick, where we're going to be forced to make a decision to stand up for Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised if we live in a world, don't be surprised when you see that we're living in a world that is increasingly hostile to the basic fundamental Christian beliefs. Number two, I want us to maintain, maintain an exclusivity to Jesus Christ in your hearts, and in your testimony. Maintain an exclusivity to Jesus Christ in your heart and, it, and, and in your testimony. I know that we understand in our testimony that we're supposed to just preach Jesus Christ and Christ alone, that there is salvation in nobody else. There is salvation in no one else under heaven um, um, amongst men by which we must be saved. But honestly... We need this exclusive gospel for our hearts as well. We need this because our hearts are usually prone to going back to, I want to be a good boy for God. I want to be a good girl for God. I just want to be so good so that God can love me. Even in your hearts, remember the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Three, 
Pray for boldness in an increasingly hostile environment. Friends, we need to pray for boldness. That boldness that we saw with Peter. Peter, you know what's interesting? Peter and John, they didn't say, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so from there, thenceforth, they kept on, you know, preaching with boldness. No, they, they, they needed the Spirit again. They needed the Spirit again to pray for more boldness. Even though they were filled with the Holy Spirit to preach before the Sanhedrin, they said they prayed again and they were filled again with the Spirit. Guys, we need to pray daily. We need to pray constantly for boldness. This is not a one-time thing. This is something that we must constantly do. I want us to consider this passage in light of our times. How we are so desperate. How we are so desperate for the filling of the Holy Spirit. How we are so desperate to be bold in our midst, in the midst of this crooked world. Let us not draw back, but let's continue pressing forward. Continue pressing forward to this Jesus Christ. Continue pressing forward to the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Many people are going to tell you false doctrines and this, to believe this or to believe that. Maintain in your hearts Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that your word, Lord, speaks to us. In this generation, in 2019, Lord, Lord, we understand that there is much that we see in this world to be, um, to be concerned about. But Lord, help us so that we can maintain our Christian virtues. Help us to maintain our passion, our, our oneness to Jesus Christ, our exclusive claim to Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for the, the hearers of Mosaic. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded that you are indeed a sovereign God. And that, Lord, you have not lost control in our lives. Bless us, O oh Lord, this day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.